0: I love history and it's probably why I love the book of Acts because it is the history of the church. It begins in Acts chapter 1. Uh, Jesus has some of his followers together and he says, hey guys, I got some good news and some bad news. Good news for me, I'm leaving. Bad news is you're staying. But until I return, I have a job for you to do. And then he lays it out, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And for months now, Jesus has been talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to leave, but the Comforter is going to come. And he's going to be here with you. And he's going to empower you. So Jesus says, I want you to stay right here in Jerusalem. What I promised is getting ready to become a reality. You're going to experience the Holy Spirit. And then he says this in verse 8. He says, basically, I'm going to unleash you on the world you're going to be my witnesses. It's going to start right here in Jerusalem. And then it's going to bubble up to Judea and Samaria. And, and, and eventually, the life-changing message of my life is going to make it to the ends of the world. And, and if you know the book of Acts, it happened just as Jesus said it started in Acts chapter 2. Peter, the same Peter who a few weeks earlier had denied that he knew Jesus, not once, but three times, right? Now all of a sudden, he's found this new empowerment. First of all, because he's received the Holy Spirit. But also, he saw Jesus die, go to the tomb, and three days later, come back to life. I mean, that's going to change your perspective on everything, right? So now he walks out into the streets of Jerusalem, finds a corner somewhere, preaches the message of Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 2 tells us, at that moment, 3,000 Jews converted from Judaism to christianity and that was the beginning of the church of jesus christ right there in jerusalem and it was an incredible church just read acts chapter 2 i mean they were studying god's word together they were praying together they were supporting one another they were hanging out and eating their meals together it says that they were even selling their possessions and pulling all of their resources to make that make sure that everybody's needs were being met it was incredible And the community, as they looked on from the outside, maybe they didn't believe it all, but they were so impressed by this new church. I mean, there was like a love fest going on in Jerusalem. And they didn't want to leave it. They didn't want to mess it up. And a lot of churches are like that. Man, something good's going on. Let's not touch it. Just leave it like it is. But see, God said, that wasn't my plan. It was never intended to stay just in Jerusalem. Remember, it was supposed to go to Judea, Samaria, ultimately to the ends of the earth. So God says, if you don't want to take the message on your own, I will help you. And so God sent persecution to that church. And they began to scatter like rats on a sinking ship. But understand, it was all part of God's plan because everywhere they went, they took with them the church. Everywhere they went, they took with them the gospel, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And there was one young man, his name was Philip. Philip. And we're told in Acts chapter 8 that he made his way up to Samaria and he shared the gospel with the Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? What were they? they were Jews who had intermingled, intermarried with the Gentiles. And they were considered unclean. They were considered outsiders. By the Jews, they were considered unreachable. But when the church went with Philip to Samaria, the gospel and the church was unleashed. And I love what it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 8. There was great joy in the city. There was great joy in the city and that's what happens every time the church is unleashed in the world about 20 years ago there was a group of us that moved from california we joined up with two families here in north carolina and we we began hope community church together and it's been quite a journey but god allowed us to get involved in the adventure of unleashing the church to the world and there were a couple of things that i asked of god when i moved here First of all, I said, God, if if I'm going to pack up my family, if I'm going to relocate 3,000 miles across the country, if I'm going to start life all over again, first of all, will you let me finish? Will you let me complete my ministry there? Will you let me see what you've called us to do through to fruition? And just so you know, God's already completed that because I'm so old now, if you kick me to the curb, I'm finished. And nobody else is going to take me. So that part, God's already come through. Here's the second part. I said, God, second, if we're going to do this, let us build a church. That's going to make such an impact in the community, such an impact in the world, that if for some reason we no longer existed, the community in the world would miss us. There would be a void. In other words, God, if we're going to go there and do this, let us bring great joy to the city. And God has allowed us to do that. I mean, if you're new, just over the last few months, what God has allowed us to do, I, I think of Ship of Zion Our African-American church that we partnered with in Southeast Raleigh, and last Christmas, you guys sacrificed and gave the money so we could purchase them a brand new building, by the way, which they filled up, and they're getting ready to go to a second service. I also found out this week they condemned their old building, and it has to be torn down. God's timing is always perfect. But because you were sensitive and you responded, see, great joy has come to the city of Raleigh. How about the Galley grocery store? God allowed us to partner with Ship of Zion to open that grocery store. And let me tell you, this is what's so cool. This summer, I'm sitting in Mexico by a pool. I'd like to tell you I was on a mission trip, but I wasn't. I was sitting by the pool. (laughs) And I opened USA Today. USA Today. And on the third page of USA Today, it says Raleigh, North Carolina, Hope Community Church, partnered with Ship of Zion, also of Raleigh, to open the Galley grocery store in what was considered a food desert. A food desert is an area where there's no fresh meat, no fresh produce within seven miles. And here we are in USA today. I mean, doesn't God have a sense of humor? But we brought great joy to the city. I think about our Agape campus in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where the message is going out and lives are being changed and families are being put back together. There's great joy in the city. I think of a couple of Christmases ago where we asked you to sacrifice and to raise money so that we could build a worship center for a bunch of orphans that were displaced by war in the northern part of Uganda, the Gulu region, in a little village called Laminadera, Over 1,800 orphans and the people that take care of them. And what an honor it was to be there and to dedicate that building. And by your sacrifice and giving, we brought great joy to that city. I, I think about all the villages that I went through in Central African Republic, the poorest country on the planet. And how you sacrificed and you gave in every village we went into, we drilled a well for people who had never had fresh water in their life. The number one health cause, a crisis in Central African Republic, no fresh water. Average lifespan for a man, 38, for a woman, 42 years old. And we went in and we drilled wells and then we brought in an African trained pastor and he began churches in those villages. And I'll never forget one time, Jim Hockey, who was working there, he wouldn't even tell us where we were going. We just got in his Jeep and we took off for 12 hours through the jungle. The bush was so deep, uh, it was so dense that when we needed to go to the restroom or get out, we had to, we had to crawl out the back window of the Jeep because you couldn't open the doors. I mean, it was just, we were like going down a bike trail through the jungle for 12 hours. Finally, we get to an opening and there's a little pygmy village on the river. And he said, Mike, this is what the pygmy referred to as the end of the world and we drilled a well there and we started a church there and I thought even as Hope Community Church we have had the opportunity to take the life-changing message of Jesus Christ literally to the end of the world I got to tell you that's the way it's supposed to be because the church is the hope of the world I mean think about it the church is the only organization in society that is redeeming lives The church is the only organization that actually plays a role in where people are going to spend their eternity. Tim Fairchild works for SAS. SAS can't say that. That's a great company. I don't care how many cafeterias they have, right? They can't determine a person's eternal destiny, right? Cisco can't do that. They're laying off people, right? Walmart can't pull that off. IBM, only the church can do that. And as a church, God has allowed us to partner with him on this great adventure. But this is what I've got to tell you. As a church, we haven't even come close to reaching our potential. My guess is our redemptive potential here. When I say redemptive potential, I mean how God could actually use us to bring his kingdom to this earth. My guess that our redemptive potential as a church, maybe we're hitting at about 15, if I stretch it, 20% of where we ought to be. And how we measure that is we have five goals at Hope that we believe once we live these goals out, we exemplify the Christian life that God has called us to. And so we ask ourselves this, how many people are living obediently to the Word of God? How many people are serving selflessly? How many people are connecting intentionally in community? How many people are sharing willingly the story of how Jesus Christ has changed their life? How many people in our congregation are giving generously from their resources? But i got to be honest with you, we're not doing a great job. I'm not sure we're any different than any other church in America, but... Instead of 15%, what if it was 50%? What if it was 60%? Can you imagine the impact we could make, that God could make through us? Unfortunately, we have a lot of you just sitting on the sideline with your arms crossed. You're not in the game. Many of you, you know, you aren't, you aren't living obediently. You know that. I know that. Let's not kid ourselves. Some of you aren't serving selflessly. In fact, many of you, you aren't even serving, period. There's a lot of you who aren't connected in community intentionally at any level, we have people, you aren't sharing your story of how Jesus Christ has changed your life. In fact, for many of you, you haven't had a meaningful conversation with an unbeliever in years. Maybe you've never, ever had one. We have people sitting around us every week, and you're managing mountains of financial resources that God has given you. But at the end of the day, you're just tipping God. Or in some cases, you're not giving anything. And I'm going to be honest with you. We're not reaching our redemptive potential. What we could be doing, how God could be using us. And that bothers me. But I think probably more importantly... It must really bother God. So this is what we're going to talk about in our Unleashed series. How do we begin to reach our potential as a church? And we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, what could really happen if we became the church that Jesus died for us to become? We're going to dream a little bit. We're going to talk about our future over the next couple of years, what it's going to look like as a church, as a congregation across our campuses. We're going to talk about the cost. What's it going to cost us to make this huge step forward in reaching the triangle and changing the world? Because it's interesting, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, the Greek word there, the Bible was written in Greek, the New Testament. The Greek word translated witnesses is also translated in other places, martyrs. Well, that's significant. What was Jesus saying? If you're going to be involved in getting my message to the ends of the earth, it is going to cost you something. And if we're going to go on this journey together, we got to get past this. This is easy believism. Let's just, you know, I'm just here for the show. we got to talk about what it's going to cost us. For example, about a year from now, we hope to be entering into a brand new campus in our Holly Springs apex area. There's the artist rendering of what it's going to look like. And it's going to be so cool because we're not really building a church campus. We're building a community center that's going to invite the community into our building. Instead of a fancy worship center like this, we're actually building a gymnasium that will be used as a worship center on the weekend. Two basketball courts, six volleyball courts where couples and families can come in and use it during the week. There will be exercise rooms. There also will be a daycare that will take care of 285 children Every day, which is going to allow us to meet all kinds of new couples in the Apex Holly Spring area that are going to be coming in and dropping off their kids, building those relationships and introducing them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But on the weekend, see, that gymnasium, that gymatorium, it's going to hold 1,500 people. And on top of that, you you figure multiply that times four services, that means that we have the opportunity to reach 6,000 adults every weekend in the Apex Holly Springs area. Add to that children and teens. We're talking maybe 10,000 people every weekend. Add that to our Raleigh campus and our Morrisville campus. We have the potential to reach over 20,000 people every weekend with a life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Imagine 20,000 people who are living obediently and serving selflessly and connecting intentionally and sharing willingly and giving generously. You think we can make a dent in our community? And we're going to talk about that. And over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about how are we going to do it without going into debt. And in the next five weeks, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, I'm going to ask you to give at a generous level like you've never given in your life. And Laura and I have already thought through this, and and we've committed over the next two years to give at a level like we have never given to in our lives because we believe what Hope Community Church is doing is what God wants us to do. Now, I know the minute I said I'm going to be challenging you to give, some of you just checked out. We don't want to lose you over the next five weeks, so we made some alternative programming. Go ahead and throw that up if you would, Mark. And so we'll have those going for those who don't want to hear anything about giving money, but you still want to be here, okay? So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about over the next two years, over the next 24 months, 2015 and 2016, we're going to invest over $5 million outside the doors of hope into our local and global community. That's exciting. We're going to talk about how we're going to empower our small groups to actually be the change in our neighborhoods, in our communities, our small groups making the difference at a grassroots level. We're going to be talking about that. And as you leave this weekend, you're going to get a little booklet just like this. kind of gives you an overview of where we're going and what we're going to be talking about over the next five weeks. But it also includes a weekly Bible study that goes with... each weekend message and you'll be using those in your small groups if you're not in a small group this is a be a great time to get involved in one but even if you're not these are studies that you can go through to get by yourself each week you can go through this and you can ask how am I doing when it comes to these five goals because the reality is this if we're going to be used the way God wants us to be used we've got to do a better job of living out these five goals in fact I'm gonna really challenge you to do something and 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 this is gonna blow some of your minds I'm gonna challenge you some of you would you come to church for the next five weeks? And some of you are thinking, Mike, you might as well ask me to sprout wings and fly. I mean, who goes to church five weeks in a row? Hey, if you've ever been to church in your life five weeks in a row, raise your hand. Look at that, people. That tells you that it's possible. The fairs in town, do not go there. You'll get a boleye. You don't even want to go there. <laughs> then I got to visit you in the hospital in one of those hazmat suits, and I don't look good in hazmat. So just come on to church, avoid all that stuff, right? But we're going to have a great time together. Now, this weekend, we're going to begin the series by looking at our first goal, and it's this idea of living before God obediently. And let me tell you why this is so important. It's because it is the foundation of everything else that we're going to talk about. But let me give you a principle that we're going to see throughout the series, and it's this. When God evaluates our potential for his kingdom, he doesn't evaluate us according to the criteria that the world evaluates us by. Let me say that again. When God looks at our redemptive potential, when he evaluates our potential for his kingdom, he doesn't evaluate us according to the criteria that the world evaluates us by. See, man looks at us, and they like, well, you're attractive. You're probably going to go far. Or, man, you came from a great family. Or you went to a great school. Or, man, you had incredible SAT scores. See, they look at those kinds of things. But this is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And i got to tell you, that key thought has to get riveted into our minds if we're going to be open to this idea of God using us like we've never imagined. We've got to understand God doesn't look at the things that man looks at. God isn't impressed by the same things that man is impressed by. God looks at heart issues. He looks at things like obedience. So this weekend, we're going to see the power of obedience to God in the life of one of my favorite Bible characters. His name is Daniel. And we're going to see that Daniel, even as a young man, 15, 16-year-old kid, he had this passion to obey God regardless of what it cost him, regardless of the consequences, and because he was so committed to obeying God and being obedient to God's word, God used him in incredible ways. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Daniel chapter 1. By the way, let me just tell you why you're turning. Daniel chapter one. Let me tell you why this idea of obedience to God is so important. It's because, listen, if you haven't figured this out yet, we live in a world where there are no more absolutes. Are you figuring that out? It used to be a time when the word of God stood for something, and society kind of structured itself around the word of God. This This is a conversation you would have never heard two generations ago. Same sex what? See? A woman's right to choose what? But because, see, we, we get so broad and we get so smart we have to discuss everything. No, There's nothing that's black and white anymore. Everything's kind of a nauseating gray. Let's just discuss it. And we have become a culture that is much more interested about fairness and political correctness and rights than we are simply being obedient to God. Let me tell you something. And, and uh, some of this, it's not going to sit well with you. But let me just share it with you. God is much more concerned about obedience than he is fairness. He's much more concerned about obedience than our rights. He's much more concerned about obedience than he is being politically correct. It's not that he isn't concerned maybe about some of those other things, but he's much more concerned about obedience. So that's what, that's what we're going to be talking about. Daniel chapter 1, let me give you a little bit of background. Daniel. He's probably about 14, 15, maybe 16 years old. He's living in Jerusalem with all of his family, all of his friends. When King Nebuchadnezzar sweeps in, uh, destroys the city, and conquers it. And you've, you probably remember studying this date in history, 580, 586 B.C. He destroys Jerusalem. And after defeating Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to take the best and the brightest young people into captivity in Babylon. Daniel is one of these young men, these young teenagers, taken into captivity. So keep in mind, as the story opens... Daniel is now about 800 miles from his home, 800 miles from his family and friends. He's in this perverted, decadent culture of Babylon. If you've ever remembered studying history, you know how decadent it was. And King Nebuchadnezzar plans basically to make Babylonians out of these young Jewish men and women so that they can have a positive impact on the Babylonian culture. And to impress and win these guys over, this is what it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And, and that sounds pretty generous, like that's big of the king. But Daniel immediately realizes that he has a problem. Because Daniel knew that if he was being served the best food from the king's table, this is also food that had first been offered up to idols. Because the idols always got the best, and then it went to the king. He also knew from his Jewish upbringing that it violated the covenant that he had with God. It violated the law of God that he had grown up with. So picture this scene. Daniel is dropped into this free-thinking, decadent society. Okay, this is like sending your kids to gray school or carry Christian School and then dropping them into Chapel Hill. It's that same kind of analogy going on, right? Okay, it's a bad place. And he's, he, he's going to be taught their philosophy. He's going to be taught their literature. He's going to be taught their language. He's going to undergo a brainwashing experience. They're going to try to drain out of him all of his traditional thinking, and they're going to replace it with a whole new set of values. It's a process that the Bible tells us was going to take about three years. So this is the situation Daniel finds himself in. But I want you to notice Daniel's decision. Now remember, he's like 15, 16 years old. Here's Daniel's decision in chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel resolved that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The, Greek, the Hebrew word there means he purposed in his heart. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He resolved as past tense. In other words, he made this decision ahead of time. And the decision that Daniel made was this. Regardless of what I face, regardless of what situation I find myself in, I am not going to sell out. I am not going to disobey God. And it was as if God, I think, looked at Daniel at that point and thought, wow, you're a young man, but I'm telling you, I'm going to use you greatly. And it wasn't because of everything he had going on for him from the outside. It wasn't because he came from a great family or went to a great school or, you know, maybe got to study abroad. It was none of those things. It was because Daniel had made up his mind. He was going to be obedient to God no matter what the cost. Well, turn over a few pages of chapter 6, and this sets the scene for the story that we're going to look at for a few minutes. Nebuchadnezzar, the one who took Daniel into captivity, he's died. There's a new king on the scene. His name is King Darius. And over this period of time, because of Daniel's skill and integrity and hard work and, and his talent, he's been promoted to the role of commissioner. That means that he oversees all the people who collect taxes for the kingdom. And his job was to accurately report to the king all of the taxes that had been collected so the king would know how much money he had. A very important role. So you get to chapter 6, verse 3, and this is what it says. It says, Daniel distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps, that's the word for those who were collectors, by his exceptional qualities, and the king planned to set him over the whole Kingdom. That means that Daniel is getting ready to be promoted to the number two most powerful role and the most powerful kingdom on the planet at that time. Number two guy. Verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to do so. So these other people in the government, they, a little bit of racism going here on here. They didn't like the idea that this outsider, this foreigner, was going to have all of this power. So they decide, we're going to get some dirt on Daniel, and we're going to bring him down. So they put a tail on him. You know, they check his files. They go through his computer. They watch every move he makes. They can't find anything he's doing wrong. I mean, there's no unpaid parking ticket. There's no evidence of stolen office supplies. His blood test isn't showing that he's token up a groovy on the weekend. That's not going on. There's no rumors of behind-the-scenes hanky-panky with any of the little hotties from the secretarial poll. Just absolutely nothing. And these guys finally come to the conclusion, we're never going to find any dirt on this guy. We're never going to find anything to charge him with unless it has to do with his religious beliefs. I mean, this guy is a Sunday school boy. He is straight as an arrow. Say they come up with a plan to trap Daniel. They make up this idea, and they go in and see the king. Verse 7. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. And the king, he's got a little ego thing going on. He's like, great idea. Everybody praying only to me, make it happen. But notice Daniel's response in verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed. Look at this. Just as he had always done. Again, make sure you understand what's at stake. Daniel started out as a slave. He's getting ready to be promoted to the number two guy. He's getting ready to be handed basically the keys to the kingdom. I mean, life is good. And I think if we're honest, many of us, if we were faced with this same situation, and now we're between this rock and the hard plate, what does God want me to do? What does the king want me to do? We would immediately go into justification mode, right? And a lot of us would begin thinking things like, well, it's obvious that God put me in this position for a reason. You know, he wants me to make an impact, he wants me to make a difference. He doesn't want me to blow it now. I've worked so hard to get here. God wants me here. He needs me here, but yet I still have to pray. Well, you know what? I don't have to pray three times a day with the window open. I can pray in the shower. I'll pull that curtain tight nobody will even notice. Even better, I can pray while I'm driving my chariot to work. I'll just keep my eyes open. You can pray with your eyes open. It'll just be between me and God. We'll just kind of keep it a secret. I don't want to ruin this opportunity, not Daniel. mm He got on his knees and he prayed just as he always had. Now this brings up an issue. Was he trying to be obnoxious? And let's be honest, as Christians, we can be obnoxious. Was he trying to be defiant? I don't think that's the situation. It's just that when he was young, a teenager, he made up his mind that he was going to be obedient to God. He decided that he belonged to God and he was not going to disobey even for the sake of success, wealth, promotion, comfort. I mean, he had basically said, God, everything I have, I belong to you. My future is yours. My life is yours. God, I am totally available to you. I'm just going to be obedient. And I'm going to trust you with the outcome. So the trap is set when you get to verse 11. Look what happened. These men, they went as a group and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days... Anyone who prays to any God or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians. This is where it comes from when you've heard that saying, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, and it's kind of like, nanny, 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 Daniel, we saw Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard all this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. But there's a reason it's called the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once it was in place, it was irrevocable. It was unchangeable. And as hard as the king looked for a loophole to get Daniel, whom he loved, out of this situation, he can't find one. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, Rescue you. So Daniel's put into the lion's den. Stone is put over the mouth of the den. King comes home, crawls in bed, can't sleep. I think Daniel was asleep by the time the king pulled up his covers. King can't sleep. Turns on Jimmy Fallon, can't sleep. Tries CNN, can't sleep. Goes over to HGTV, couple of episodes, House Hunter, can't sleep. Two melatonin and a Benadryl, can't sleep, Right? finally it says in verse 19 at the first light of dawn the king got up and hurried to the lion's den and when he when he got close enough where he thought daniel could hear he calls out to him daniel servant of the living god look at this has your god not my god because he had many gods right has your god whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions and i think it probably woke daniel up like i'd just cuddle him with the lions you know and who's yelling out there? And Yeah, I'm good. Verse 22, my God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lion. They haven't hurt me because I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. By the way, that would not have been my initial response. <laughs> like, you want to get me out of here? We'll talk about it. We're go to Starbucks. I'll give you a play-by-play. Just get me out of here, right? Daniel, he's just carrying on a conversation, right? Finally, the king gives him out, verse 23, and there was no wound found on him because, here it is, he trusted God. And you know what the king's response was? New rule. This rule was a stupid rule. We're changing everything. Verse 25. I I want you to hear these verses. Then King Darius, who's not a believer in the real God, wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the city. That means that Darius passed the law basically. That impacts the whole known world in regards to Daniel's God. I issue the decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence, not my God, the God of Daniel. For he, obviously, is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius... In the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. In other words, Daniel, by just being obedient, impacted and changed the heart of not one, but two kings. Now, here's the big question. I love that story. I've heard it since I was in Sunday school. Here's the big question. Why was God able to use Daniel in such an incredible way? You say, well, I tell you, he must have been one good-looking dude. You know, I mean, just winsome and people attracted to him. No, you'd be wrong. Well, he must have come from the right family and gone to the best schools. Wrong. Well, he he must have been so talented and gifted and he must have been intelligent. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The reason that God was able to use Daniel in such an incredible way was because Daniel had decided, I will not compromise regardless of the consequences, regardless of the cost. I will obey God. I will be obedient to him. Now, do you know what that tells me? It tells me that God is looking for men and women and students and children who have a passion to obey him. He's looking for people who will not be bought off. People who can't be bribed. He's looking for people who won't find the safe, easy way out of a situation. He's looking for people who are willing to say, I will not disobey what God has called me to be. And I will not disobey what God has called me to do in his word. Now let me tell you why this is so significant. It's because when we live this way that we're just going to be obedient to God. We're just going to be obedient to his principles and the precepts in his word. See, when we live that way, we become a beacon. We become a light in this dark world that we live in. I'm telling you, When we as Christians, not in an obnoxious way, not in a defiant way, but when we take a stand, we become like a flashing neon sign that cannot be ignored. And over time, people observe you. And eventually, they are drawn to you. And they're going to have to ask you, this is the key moment, they're going to have to ask you eventually the burning question. And here's the burning question. You're different. You do life different. You see life different. Why? Why would you take this stand? Look at what's at stake. Why would you take this stand? Look at what you could have. Why won't you go to that place with your client? Why won't you falsify the report? Why won't you sign the document even though you know it's not accurate? Why won't you lie? Why won't you stay the night? Why won't you sleep with me? What's the big deal? And understand at that moment when the why question comes, we have the opportunity that otherwise we would never have. We have the opportunity to respond, I will not do it because I serve the living God. And regardless of what happens to me in this life, I'm telling you, he is so real to me. I will not compromise. I will not disobey because I'm telling you, what I have to lose in this life is nothing compared to what I have to lose by disobeying God. I'm telling you something. We live in a world that is so dark, they don't even know how to handle that kind of conviction. We live in a world that's so gray, so wishy-washy, they don't even know what to do when someone actually has a standard. I'm just telling you, if you will decide to be a person of standards... A person of obedience to the word of God, his principles, his precepts, that you're not going to disobey. I'm just telling you, God will use you. And I'll tell you why, because you'll be a light. And a light cannot be ignored in the darkness. Light is always going to attract attention. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew when he says, get out there, guys, and let your light shine before Men. Now I'm going to be honest with you, when you do that, when you take a stand, when you actually have some convictions, I promise you, there is going to be some conflict. And there will be some ramifications. You may get passed over for a promotion. You may not make as much money as you possibly could. You may even lose some friendships. But I'm going to tell you, there are two things that the Bible promises. And one is this, when we stand with God and do the right thing, we always win in the end. You know that and I know that because, see, there are things where we've made happen, we've mi- manipulated into happening. But at the end of the day when the deal is closed, we look back and there's, there's this sick uh, feeling in our stomach because we know we didn't do it God's way. But when you do it God's way, regardless of the consequence, you look back and think, you know what? <laughs> I did the right thing. Here's the second thing you can always learn from Scripture. God can take people in lowly positions, and he can raise them up to be used in incredible ways. But we have to be willing to live obediently no matter what. So you have to start seeing life differently. You have to say like, okay, now I get it. This is why God put me in this job. This is why God had me choose that roommate. This is why God transferred that person into my office. This is why God brought me to the triangle and put me in this position. I get it now. It's to be a light in the darkness. And the only way they're going to know that you're a light is that you act like a light. And you shine in the darkness. Let me tell you something. Remember how he said God doesn't look at the things man looks at? God isn't nearly as interested in your gifts and your talents and your abilities as he is in your obedience, as he is in your passion to obey. I'll tell you why. Because gifts and talents and abilities, they're the kind of things that can make a big splash in the world. Ooh, you you gotta hear that guy talk. You gotta hear her sing. You ought to see him give a sales presentation. We make a big splash in the world. But I'm telling you something, and I see this all the time in ministers around me. I don't care how talented you are if there isn't a commitment to a lifestyle of obedience. It will not last for the long haul. Because things like convenience and comfort and fame, they will be our undoing every time. So we have to resolve, we have to decide that obedience to God is more important than anything else in life, regardless of what's at stake. By the way, do you know what hangs in the balance of you choosing whether or not to live obediently? Do you know what hangs in the balance? You don't know. I mean, that's, that's just it. That's what makes this such a compelling principle. You don't know what hangs in the balance. Think about it. All Daniel knew was this. I'm just going to be obedient to God, and I'm going to pray the way I've always prayed. He had no idea that God was somehow going to use that obedience to change the heart of two kings. He didn't know that. All Daniel knows is I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm just being obedient. Now, here's the scary part for us. When it comes to obedience, we don't know who or what hangs in the balance. We don't know who or what hangs in the balance because, see, we don't know what God wants to do. But I guarantee you this, I promise you this, none of us want to get to the end of our lives and discover that God wanted to do some incredible stuff through us if we'd just been obedient. If we would have just dealt with some of those little annoying sin in our lives, you know. If we would have just maybe had some standards and if we refuse to compromise. You see, the lie we believe is this. The only consequence to my sin is what the cost might be to me. That's why people are like, I am an island. If I do it, it's my choice, it's my problem, it's my consequence. That's not true. You don't know what hangs in the balance. You don't know what's at stake. So God says, okay, I'll tell you what's at stake. This is what's at stake when it comes to obedience. It's your potential to be used by me. In the lives of the people I've placed around you. That's what's at stake. See, some of you, you want to be a positive. I mean, you're a Christian, no doubt about it. You would love to be a positive influence in the workplace. You would love to be a light there because it's so dark. But you know what? You can't. You know why you can't? Because there's some things in your life you refuse to deal with, you refuse to clean up your language. You refuse to stop going to the strip club with the guys every once in a while after work. You refuse to deal with your behavior so that every time there's an office party, you come in on Monday having to apologize for for being inappropriate. And because of that, you've lost your potential to be light, to be an influence. Some of you, you would love to be like that in your home as a parent. But you know what? Your kids come to church. That's a problem. Because kids can be black and white. And, And when it says, don't do this... You might, you might look good at church parents, but at home your kids see you. Wait wait a second, Dad. I thought we talked about in church this week you're not supposed to do that, and you're doing that. And you're well, well that's what I've got to explain it to you. And we'll talk more about that next week. But you can't even influence your children because they see two different sides of you. They see the church side, but then they see the home side. Or maybe you're here this weekend, and you just had one of those teenage years or college periods of times where, I mean, you just blew the world apart. You colored outside the line for years. It was a disaster and you carry the scars today. And you look around and you see the young people and the college people around here and you thought, man, I would love to share my story with them. Don't do what I did. Save yourself from all of this. But see, you can't because there are still certain areas of your life where you refuse to be obedient and they disqualify you and your credibility. So understand this. You might be able to have all kinds of influence around people. And when God talks about obedience and getting your act together, it's not just for your sake. It's for his kingdom's sake. He may use you to have incredible influence, but you you, you won't get your act together, right? And I'll tell you why. Because at the end of the day, you know who God uses? Not the most talented, not the best looking. He uses people that have a lifestyle that brings honor and glory to him. I don't think God's looking for famous people. He's not against them. I don't think his target's talented people. I think he's just looking for average people like Daniel. Just a 15-year-old snot-nosed kid who decided he was going to be obedient. And Daniel, because of that, was able to rise to a position of influence. He's looking for people who say, I'll take a stand. I am not going to compromise my morals. I am not going to compromise my ethics. I am not going to compromise my integrity. He's looking for people who would just be obedient and stand firm. He's looking for people who will be a light in this dark world. Now, here's the question. Does that describe you? Be honest. Does it describe your lifestyle? Does it describe your commitment to Jesus Christ? I'm promising you this. This is the very first step. This is foundational to reaching the triangle and changing the world because Jesus Christ called us to be a light. But you've got to get to the point that says, I will live obediently to God no matter what so that he can use me to be a light in this dark world. Let's bow together. Let me tell you something. I'm a minister, and I've been a minister a long time, but I know that disobedience can be fun. And sin can be fun. And bad habits can give you a rush. But I'm going to tell you as a Christian, you're going to look back one day, and I promise you it's all going to be worth zero. The rush will be gone. The thrill will be gone. And what you will have missed out on is the opportunity to invest your life and make a difference in the kingdom of God. And when you think about it, all God is asking for is obedience, just doing life his way. All he's asking for is a standard. Let's be honest. It's going to make your life better anyway. Whose life isn't better in the long run by living a life of integrity with morals and ethics? But more importantly, it increases your potential in the kingdom of God. So here's a couple of things I want you to think through over the next few weeks of this series. What do you want to see God use you to do? Who do you want to see God use you to reach an impact? And it could be that your potential hinges on your willingness to make some tough decisions about a few habits, a few relationships, maybe a couple of weekend activities that you shouldn't be involved in. But it could make all the difference between what God is willing and able to do in and through your life. But I'm telling you, the potential of your life in God's kingdom hinges on your ability and your willingness to develop a passion to live obediently for him. Father, work in our hearts through your spirit. We know what needs to be done. We know what corners of our life are dusty and dirty and we're carrying around stuff we shouldn't be carrying around and we're involved in things and We shouldn't be involved in, we know. But maybe what we don't realize is how much it's hurting our potential to be used by you. Father, we're either serious about being your witnesses, your martyrs, we're willing to pay the price, or we're not. But help us to see ourselves clearly as you see us and help us to respond accordingly. In your name we pray. Amen.